Thanks for your prayers, Aki. Well, it's good to see all of you here this afternoon. Happy Sabbath to you all. So today we're going to be finishing up our series on the 3D Gospel. Um, and we're, we've been exploring this idea of really understanding how to interpret Scripture for ourselves in the light of our culture and also how we contextualize the gospel and share it with those around us. So today's sermon is entitled 3D Gospel, What Does the Gospel Mean to You? Part 2. Now last time I shared, uh, I shared about how the Adventist Twitter handle had uh, responded to Elon Musk's tweet and shared about the Sabbath, and they had kind of contextualized the Sabbath truth to well, what was once the richest man in the world. He is now, I think, second wealthiest uh, man on, on planet Earth. Um, but they were highlighting um, how rest can bring about more productivity. Now, as an Adventist who was born and raised in the church, oftentimes I would hear about how the Sabbath is about rest and holiness. But here in this particular context, the Adventist church highlights productivity. And I thought this is a great example of contextualizing truth. We also looked at examples of how God introduced himself differently to different generations of people throughout the history of Scripture. Here are the three different contextualized categories that uh, I highlighted last time, which was guilt and innocent culture, uh, guilt and innocence cultures, which highlight individualistic societies where people who break the laws are guilty and seek justice or forgiveness to rectify wrong. I also highlighted shame and honor cultures, which describe collectivistic cultures where people are shamed for not fulfilling group expectations and seek to restore their honor before the community. And finally, we looked at fear power cultures, which are animistic contexts where people who are afraid of evil and harm pursue power over the spirit world. So Ronald Mueller writes, the guilt-shame-fear trichotomy gives us insight in interpreting scripture so we can more fully experience the gospel. When I think about these three different cultures, I think of uh, the color wheel, where you've got three basic colors, but as those three colors overlap, you get a myriad or a spectrum of color. And I think this, these different cultures provide us a way to read the gospel uh, in a more meaningful way, and we can also contextualize it for ourselves. Now, as you listen today, you're going to find that this model has its limits. It's simplistic. And the reality is we live in a global community, um, and we're all a mixture of these three cultures. It's just each culture prioritizes these things differently. Now, I know last time I shared uh, a link to a survey. I'd actually like us to do this one more time. This time it's only five questions. Now, last time we did the survey, you were able to get your personal results emailed to you directly. But today, what I'd like us to do is we're going to see the results of the survey in real time. Um, I've put together a Google form. And I think it'll give us a feel for the room. And I feel like that gives us a different understanding of ourselves as a church. So if you can pop your phones out, scan the QR code, and I'm going to ask James if he can actually post the uh, results of the survey um, on the screen for us. For those of you who are joining us online, this may not show up, but you can feel free to take a look at the questions, and I'll give you an idea of what we're trying to do. So it's just five simple questions. Now, I'm going to ask you just to fill out uh, or just to pick one option. 
And the, w the way that I'd like you to do this is sometimes you'll read a question and multiple answers are going to um, feel relevant to you, but just pick the option that you feel the strongest connection to. And James and Andrew, can I get you guys to scroll down a little bit as we look at the results? Um, keep scrolling down. Uh, or actually, we'll just go one question at a time if you can go up to the next one. Yep, so that first question is about um, sin, I believe. Maybe go up two. Yep, one more. Excellent. Now, some of these answers are going to be, the results are going to be skewed because I actually had to do a test run and I just randomly clicked the buttons and I couldn't retract my answers. And so there are a couple of them where you're just going to see one answer. That, that was probably me. All right, so I think this gives us a pretty good, uh, pretty good uh, sample. So that first question was, sinners are, and we've got 14 responses, condemned, rejected, cursed. So in this particular context, the majority of us adopt this idea of guilt and innocence um, as we approach this idea of sin. Let's go down to the next question. So the emotions of sin, the emotion of sin, regret, oh, going back up one. Yep, regret, unworthiness, anxiety. And so this question is really asking us, what do you feel when you experience sin? And once again, we have a very strong leaning towards um, guilt and innocence. Next question, Christ's incarnation. Now it's interesting that the answers are starting to um, change a little bit where we highlight shame and honor as opposed to guilt and innocence. So Christ's incarnation, Jesus became human to fully pay our debt. Jesus left heaven to glorify the Father and us. Jesus arrived to destroy the works of the devil. Let's go down one more. Grace overcomes wickedness, worthlessness, and weakness. And this is where we start seeing that variation. Even though we've got three cultures, we are a blend of all three of these. And let's go to the last one. I believe it's forgiveness. Uh, down at the bottom. Yep, forgiveness. Pardons wrong. Reconciles relationships, removes strongholds. All right, can we go back to the slide deck, please? So in Acts chapter 26, verse 18, when Paul presents the gospel, he highlights all three of these multifacets of the gospel. Uh, in Acts 26, verse 18, he says, The gospel is here to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. So I want to start by talking about guilt and innocence. This morning, um, Micah had a little bit of an incident. And um, now I realize like whenever I preach, my family is in danger of me airing out all the dirty laundry. But I did ask him, is it okay if I share this story? And he said, yeah, you can share the story. <laughs> so Micah had an incident this morning, and he, he kind of came up with his own discipline where he comes up to me and says, hey, Dad, I know I did wrong. Um, look, I've got my stuffed animal doggy that I'm really attached to. I'm going to take a time out from doggy for three days straight. And 
you know, I, I listened to his, uh, his, him, him, his own solution to, um, his, his naughtiness. <laughs> Sorry, Micah. Um, but it was just kind of interesting listening to his, um, what felt right and morally correct for this nine-year-old. Now, in the guilt-innocence culture, um, it really highlights this intrinsic morality. The notion of right and wrong are foundational pillars to this culture. C.S. Lewis writes, integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is looking. And so people who adopt this culture or this way of living are really encouraged to internalize truth. Uh, oftentimes, you'll hear people from this culture use phrases like, think for yourself, be true to yourself, blaze your own trail. Now, since everyone possesses their own internal compass, the community doesn't really put pressure on acceptable behavior. So there's this focus on personal action, justice and equality. So someone who is guilty can remedy a bad action by an equal action, hence the timeout from Doggy for three days straight. We all have our own ways of practicing justice. In our country, it's through fines, jail, or community service. Now, how does the gospel minister to this culture? I want to share a passage from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. And I'm just going to read through the passage and comment as I read. So Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now what's interesting here is that Paul says, God has righteousness. There's right standing between an individual who is not right with God, and how do they pursue that righteousness? And Paul says, it's apart or separate from what we do. So that phrase, uh, righteousness of God apart from the law, just means we can't do good to receive God's righteousness. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Now, I just want to stop there. Here the passage says that the righteousness of God is demonstrated. And I recognize this is a horrible passage to preach on because there's all sorts of jargon and theological terminology. But I just want you to highlight on that one phrase, God demonstrates his righteousness. And when I read that passage, I ask myself the question, how does God demonstrate his righteousness? And in summary, he forgives. He's merciful. He is patience, right? It talks about his forbearance. See, this completely changes our definition of what it means to be right or what it means to be good. Because growing up, I always felt like I needed to do good to be right with God. So if I in, in bad standing, the way that I change that is by giving good actions. But here, this definition says being good is not about doing good. Being good is about being okay with those who do bad. Does that make sense? And that's what defines righteousness. See, when we think of uh, being just with God, oftentimes I think we can think of it as a bank account. In other words, if I 
overdraw on my savings account, then I get a fine from the bank. And if I want to nullify that fine and not get fined anymore, I just put more money into my bank account to offset that negative balance. And then I'm good. So numerically, working or doing good makes sense. But relationally, it doesn't work that way. Let me try and um, give an example this way. I'm going to ask Micah and Joshua to come to the front. So relationally, let's say I'm going for a walk with my sons in the park, and I just kind of turn my back for one moment. And in that one moment, somebody comes and kidnaps my children. So I'm just going to ask the kidnapper to come to the front and take away my children. And and I turn around, I turn around like, where are my kids? They're gone. So one week passes, two week passes, a month passes, and what ends up happening is after a month, the kidnapper knocks on my door and says, oh, hey, so I feel bad for what I did. Here's your children. Are we now okay? I mean, he returned my kids to me, right? So he did good. Relationally, it doesn't work. It is impossible to do good to rectify wrong that has been previously done. And so in the context of Romans, what Paul says is God's righteousness is shown in that he just forgives. He forgives. Our goodness can never be enough. If we keep reading in verse 27, now this is a very challenging concept to internalize by saying, God, you're telling me that you simply forgive. But what if I keep making the same mistake over and over and over again? Am I still in good standing? Do I just simply believe that you forgive? Paul continues on in chapter 3. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. See, this is really important here. Paul is not anti-obedience. He's anti-pride. And so he's, he's presenting the gospel in a way where we can experience the mercy of God by letting go of our pride. Verse 31, he continues on. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. See, the tendency for us as recipients of God's mercy is to say, well, how deep, how vast, how far does God's mercy really go? Because I just keep goofing up and I'm not good enough. So how can God still see me as good? And Paul looks at this and he says, listen, I know this is a challenging concept, but this is not a means to give license for wrongdoing or license for sin. This is the actual foundation whereby genuine obedience is born. It's born in mercy. So Micah told me today, listen, I'll take a three-day break from doggy, and that should make us right. Like, I realized I was difficult, and I deserve this punishment. And I, I sat down with Micah, and it helps that I was writing the sermon at the time. <laughs> because you just you act extra holy <laughs> when you have to go tell other people to do the right thing. And I told Micah, look, you know, your response to doing bad is punishing yourself. But I'm actually not interested in you punishing yourself because it's not going to fix you. What I want you to do is to be good and to do good for the next week. 
So rather than being mean to your brother, I want you to be nice and loving to your brother. That's the proper response. And he thought about that for a second. And in that moment, Joshua goes up to him and he hugged him and gave him a kiss. There was an incident between the two of them this morning. I'm kind of filling in the blanks here. Joshua goes, gives his brother a hug and a kiss. And Mike goes and he hugs and cuddles him as well. That's the response to guilt. God's mercy. I feel like when I've tried to cultivate personal spirituality and I've tried to find a release from guilt, when I focus on my own actions, I find it causes a lot of distractions. I'm praying for mercy, I pray for forgiveness, but I can't stop thinking about what I bring to the table. God, I just keep goofing up. I'm not good enough. And, and it's just it's a distraction because either I'm not good enough or I think I'm good enough, but the reality is it's not good enough. And so what God wants in this response is rather than looking at what we bring to the table, to then focus and fixate on what God brings to the table. And it feels so counterintuitive because we always ask ourselves the question, but what about me? And my point is the gospel, it's about God and his goodness rather than our own righteousness. So I hope that as you practice this, that you can let God's actions speak into your life. Because you don't have to be good enough. Next, let's talk about shame and honor cultures. There's a video that I want to show you that kind of gives this great introduction to this idea. In the beginning was God. He's like an honorable elder with a grand yurt. He's like the great uncle we all wish for, powerful, respected, and always faithful. One day God created the mighty mountains, the warm sun, and fresh waters to showcase his glory. Then God made Adam and Eve, crowning them with great honor and glory. He said, have my authority, rule over my creation, bear my glory. They were God's children living in God's honorable village. Even with no clothes, Adam and Eve felt no shame. Then Satan appeared and said, Get more glory, eat the fruit, and be equal to God. But the second they tasted the fruit, their honor vanished. They felt shame. God found them hiding. You have been disloyal children, shaming yourselves and dishonoring me. What do we humans do with disgraceful things like dirt, pigs, and outhouses? We keep them far away to preserve our dignity. So likewise, God banished them. Adam was dejected. I have no name, no glory, no family, and no honor. I have only shame. In the shameful village, Adam and Eve had children, who had children, who had us. Do you know what it means that we are descendants of Adam and Eve? Imagine if your mom was the village prostitute, or your dad defected during battle. You'd get their shame. We inherit shame, then our sin brings on more shame. So one day someone had an idea. Let's make our own honor. They created multiple groups or cultures. One said you had to wear black suits and drive Mercedes. But the other determined you have to wear orange robes and be a monk. If you maintain the group's expectations, you got some honor and status. But this honor was temporary because it was made by humans. These group rules actually increased shame by excluding some people. 
Even when God selected one group to bless the other groups with honor, they boasted in their election and shunned others. When people tried to create honor for themselves, they only produced more shame. The only person who could help the honorless was God, the source and essence of honor. So God became human and entered the shameful village. Could you ever imagine a big politician with a mansion going to live in a trash dump? That was Jesus. Jesus was amazing. One time a bleeding woman snuck up and touched him, and he wasn't defiled or shamed. She was purified and dignified by Jesus. He loved and accepted everyone regardless of their shame. Jesus spoke of a great feast where the disgraced and dismissed were honored guests. Following Jesus, not the cultural rules, makes people acceptable and worthy. But the people living for earthly honor were threatened by this. So Jesus was arrested, mocked, whipped, spat on, and nailed upon a cross. He was covered in shame publicly. Why? Why would one perfectly honorable person be so shamed? The shame Jesus bore was not his own. He bore our shame. And then Jesus fully defeated that shame. He rose from death to glory. Jesus crossed back to God's village and got a great name and place of honor. Jesus' resurrection from the dead built a new bridge from death to life, from earth to heaven, from shame to honor. Finally, people could get what they always wanted, true and eternal honor from God. But not everyone followed Jesus to God's village. Some were content with the false honor they accumulated. A few thought their shame too great even for God, and others feared what relatives might think. But some trusted that Jesus took their shame and followed him. To them, God gave a new robe, hat, and inheritance documents. Humans were back in God's village. They lived honorably ever after. So I was thinking of an example, like an Australian example of this. And I find that when it comes to shame and honor, we generally don't practice this as individuals, but we heap it on athletes, right? I, I think of someone like Nick Kyrgios. And like, the guy's so talented, but I can't tell you how many times I've heard through like reports, oh, he's an embarrassment to Australia, especially like years ago, right? I, and, and the reality is like, yeah, when, when it comes, there are certain elements of our culture where we do experience shame and honor. The emphasis of shame on our cultures prioritize the community, and honor and respect hold high currency. Seneca writes, honor is the good opinion of good people. And as a result, connections are, a vital, are vital in every aspect of life. Oftentimes, personal desires are sacrificed um, for the sake of the community. When it comes to marriage and career, these are not just personal decisions. These are decisions that affect the whole clan and the whole community. I'll tell you, ever since I could remember, my dad told me, you're going to marry a Korean woman, she's going to be a doctor, and then you're going to go to Loma Linda, and you're going to become a doctor or a dentist. And there are these, this is the communal um, uh, need, this is the communal expectation. And it's not an accident that the majority of the people that I grew up with married Koreans and ended up in healthcare. Actually, I wrote a list of all of my friends, and I want to say like 70% of them went into healthcare. It's not an accident, right? 
it's a result of culture. Every person has a title and a role based on gender, age, and birth position. In my culture, every relative has a title, and that title is determined by when they were born and their gender. And when you address that relative, you only use that title, you don't use their first name ever. It's a huge sign of disrespect to call a relative, an, an older relative, by their first name. I had a friend um, who ended up taking his grandmother to the hospital in the US, and the doctor uh, did an initial assessment and asked him, what's your grandmother's name? And to which my friend replied, I don't, I don't know. And you had a clash of cultures because the doctor scolded him. How can you not know your grandmother's name? And my friend was like, it's disrespectful in my culture. Oh, never mind. <laughs> and, and, and so he had to call his parents and say, hey, what's grandmother's name? And he knows his name now. But I realize I'm throwing my friend under the bus. I don't know my grandmother's name. And, and if you meet any other Korean and you ask them, what's your grandparents' name? The majority of them will not know the answer to that question. Shame and honor cultures believe in moral right and wrong, but, it's, but the definition of morality is a relational sense. In other words, what's best for the relationship and the community is what is morally right. Um, I remember when I was going to uni, there was a significant group of overseas students, and what was more important than academic integrity was the community collectively passing the class together. And that created a lot of challenges, especially for some of us who were not from that culture, but were ethnically um, from that culture. So while actions can produce shame, the deepest kind of shame comes from being a certain type of person. So in this culture, it says, while guilt says, I made a mistake, shame says, I am a mistake. And this is how the gospel ministers to this culture. What I want to highlight here specifically is the end of the passage where Oh dear, I'm going to have to read this text for you. The copy and paste didn't work correctly. Um, if, you have your t if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 to 10. But here's what Paul writes. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So here, Paul talks about experiencing insult when there is another individual or a community of people that place a certain identity on Paul as an individual. And he says, the idea of God's grace is beneficial to me because if I consider his grace and if I consider Christ, then it makes me question, why am I living my life? Am I living my life for my sake or am I living my life for Christ's sake? And when he pauses and has that moment to process his own motives, he then says, he comes to the conclusion, God, I'm living my life you. And therefore, even if I experience insult, if I fixate on you, then I can overcome the shame. In Psalm 85 verses 5 to 7, 
the psalmist writes something similar where he says, Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. There's this idea of experiencing difficulty and challenge, but if priority is placed on God's plan and their life is seen through the lens or the perception of a pilgrimage or a spiritual journey, it gives the resilience to press on. I find the greatest challenge of overcoming that barrier of uh, shame and com- or, or communal shame and rejection, it's this, it's this idea of, as someone who is born in a Western context, it's really about being individualistic. But if collectively people look down on the individual, that's such a great, great challenge. But I find that this passage is does such a great job of ministering to that challenge by saying, live for God and see what he does because he will help and restore. The final culture that we're going to be looking at today is the fear power culture. I was at a leadership conference at Camp Haukwa. An elder from another Adventist church asked me, how do you think we should power on our faith to the next generation? And I told him, look, I don't have the answer, but one thing might be helpful. If you can know how your kids interact with the gospel, that might be helpful. For example, your kids may not be worried about the same things that you're worried about. They may not be worried about the darkness of the world, the worldliness, or evil. And he replied, yes, they don't understand that the world is evil. I want them to be protected from darkness, sin, and temptation. I want them to turn away from the things of the world. As this elder was sharing, I thought to myself, hey, you're from a fear-power-based culture. And so as he went on sharing, I learned that his children have basically grown up in Australia. So I said, well, they might be more open to personal spirituality and really tap into this idea of um, really experiencing Jesus as a friend and walking with Jesus in, in daily life and living out truth in very practical ways. And he kind of looked at me like, uh, that's not really the answer that I'm looking for. And so I just quickly ate my food and finished it and then <laughs> went on to the next meeting. Fear and power-based cultures look at two realities. The first reality is the seen world, anything that is physical. The second reality is the unseen world. These are angels, spirits, curses, ancestors, God, and heaven. Fear power cultures live in constant awareness of invisible powers, and the focus of this culture is appeasing or manipulating the unseen. Now, looking at the results from the survey, I can tell the majority of us, the vast majority of us, are not going to relate to this idea of fear and power. And even as someone who is a pastor who believes in Satan and the forces of evil, it feels weird to even say that. I believe that there is Satan. Can you say that? I'm just kind of curious. In a room full of people, I feel like you'll feel uncomfortable to say it. I, well, if you don't, then don't say it. But if you do, say, I believe in Satan. Can you do it? One, two, three. Doesn't that feel weird? Most of you didn't say it. Because <laughs> we would not want to go to work and say, I believe in Satan. To say, I believe in Jesus, for sure. But the opposite just feels so awkward. And the reality is, even if we believe in this truth, to really adopt it is a challenge. And even interacting with other people who don't agree with this 
uh, or uh, interacting with other people who do agree with this is also awkward. But the reality is that if we ignore this reality, we ignore a cosmic battle that is actually taking place. Can you imagine if there was an enemy that you didn't acknowledge? I don't know if any of you have seen the imitation game, but at the end, they crack the code from the Axis powers, and they're able to receive transmission and know where attacks are going to take place um, and when they're going to take place. And they make this decision, we are not going to intervene every single time. We need, to we need to remain unseen. When there's an attack, we need to measure, is this a critical battle? And this is how World War II came to an end. It's because the enemy remained unseen. And so when it comes to this, I encourage you to cultivate an awareness of this cosmic battle because you will find a difference in the way that you pray. You will find a difference in the way that uh, you see the events of Earth's history. This matters. So how does the gospel minister to fear and power-based cultures? In Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 28, and I'll just narrate this for the sake of time. There's a story of how Jesus, um, how Jesus heals a man who is filled with an unclean spirit. And, you know, when I interact with my kids and we have prayer time, the number one prayer request is always, uh, God, please help me not to have a bad dream at night. And the, the powers of darkness, or the power of darkness, <laughs> the definite article, the darkness, is real for them. And so there's this idea of, like, I don't like the dark, I don't like bad dreams. And I like to read Mark chapter 1 and just and highlight this idea that God is more powerful than the powers of darkness. There's this song by VeggieTales that says, God is greater than the boogeyman. I don't know if you've heard that song. It's a great, great song, especially if you have kids. Um, but yeah, this idea of trusting in God's sovereign power. So in closing, as you consider these three different cultures, I encourage you to explore each of the three and also to ask yourself which one resonates the most with me. You know, in our church ministry, we intentionally um, approach each of these three dimensions of the gospel. We approach the guilt-innocence culture by encouraging personal spirituality. Jinha, um, and actually many of us participate in this uh, daily nuggets that happens uh, every year, multiple times a year. We cultivate and encourage personal spirituality. We also provide community. And there's this idea where if many of us, if any of us have felt rejected by our own community, this place provides a safety for you to provide community and restoration for you. Not just as an individual, but us as a group. And finally, our church provides ministry for those who experience fear, um, who, who are in that fear and power culture. Because as a community, we can face darkness and challenges together. And so I just want to encourage you uh, as an individual and as a church to be aware of each aspect of the gospel, to experience one, each one fully and to be able to see the needs of those around you as well. May God bless you as you consider this. For some reason, I thought there was music. I don't know why. <laughs> Let's close with prayer. Father God, we come before you today, and as we consider the multifacetedness of the gospel, and as we consider our culture, I pray that you would give us wisdom and insight in connecting with you personally and in a meaningful way. Father, 
our cultures are defined by uh, the things that we value. And I just pray that you would help us to be able to come in touch with um, the value of your word. We pray these things in your name. Amen.